We're in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13. So what verses? All of it. We won't get to all of it tonight, but uh, we're doing our expositional study of the Gospel of Mark. And this passage represents Christ's last and most prophetic earthly sermon. And it also represents one of the most debated passages in the New Testament. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. They've just come through. They're now on the east side of Jerusalem. They're up on the side of the hill there on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples make a statement. Four of them pose a question. And Jesus begins to preach a message just for them and by extension for all of us. Now what we're going to do is we're going to temporarily depart from the outline that we've been using through the book of Mark and kind of set this off on its own. Because the Olivet Discourse, you kind of just need to deal with that by itself. And in addition to that, we're not going to stay in Mark. We're, throughout the course, this is probably three, three messages. We're going to move through Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, and then in and out of Mark 13 as well. So let's read Mark 13, beginning in verse number 1. And as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these signs be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places, there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Boy, that's a key phrase right there. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. And ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost." Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father of the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Father, would you help us now as we study this passage, Lord, or at least we begin to. I pray, God, that you'd help me to be clear. Uh, more than anything, Lord, help me to rightly divide your word of truth. Uh, Lord, I've approached this passage, I believe, with the appropriate amount of fear and, uh, and, and sobriety. Uh, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would use this to speak to our hearts and to uh, instruct us and guide us and help us to apply your word. 
More than anything, may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Now, I'm sitting down for a couple of reasons. One is it's just one of those days. But two is I am really endeavoring to be more of a teacher tonight than a preacher. And sometimes when I sit down, it helps with that. I may yet kick the chair back and go on about my business, but we'll see. But I think that, that the Olivet Discourse really almost demands more of a uh, professorial approach. Um, we'll try and see what happens. If I bog down, Brother Earl will come up here and take over, and we'll be fine. Okay? There are a multitude of perspectives about the Olivet Discourse, how it should be interpreted, how it should be applied. Now, remember, with any passage, there's one correct interpretation and then potentially several good applications, okay? And we're going to endeavor to cover both. These, these perspectives, and they are many, but they basically fall into one of three categories, okay? As people view the, the Olivet Discourse, the first view is what's called the preterist view, The preterist view means that this sermon describes what will happen from that point when Jesus is speaking to these disciples until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It has no view of the distant future and particularly the end times. Okay, That's what's called the preterist view. Now, there are good people that hold different views, people that love the Lord, people that are are striving to to honor his word. Uh, For instance, the the two that come to mind that that would have been more preterist than anything, R.C. Sproul, now in heaven, and G. Campbell Morgan. I love G. Campbell Morgan, but I would disagree with his view on this. Okay, Um, These are guys that held to a preterist view that all of this was taken care of by A.D. 70. Okay, Then you have the futurist view. And that was the idea that most or all of this discourse is dealing with what we call end times future. That that all of this is in the distant future. Now the disciples didn't know that yet, but we know that, you know, it would have been at least two thousand years from when from when they're there talking with Jesus. This is all dealing with end times stuff. By the way, don't get confused about that term. The end times have we been in the end times for a long time. Okay, we're in the end times now, but you know what I mean when I say the end times, the, the end of the end times. Okay. Then there's a third perspective for what it's worth. It's the one that I hold. Are you ready for my theological term? The hybrid. What do I mean by the hybrid? I think that some of it deals with the events surrounding 70 AD, and some of it deals with the end times, and some of it deals with points in between, or at least trends that you see happening on the way to the end times. It's the belief that the discourse references events that will take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, will occur to varying degrees throughout the church age, and lead to the tribulation, and ultimately fulfilled in the millennial reign of Jesus. Now, Anybody who would raise their hand in life and say, I have got the Olivet Discourse completely figured out. I got it all accounted for. There's nothing, no, nothing's unbuttoned, nothing's, no loose ends. I got it all figured out. One of two things is true. They're lying or they're self-deluded. Now, G.K. Chesterton, I, I wouldn't agree with him on a lot of things, but I love what he said here, and I think it's something that's worth hearing 
regarding passages like this. It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. I think there's some wisdom there. So, I worked hard on this first point. Here's number one, background and introduction. Aren't you impressed? Background and introduction. Now, this is necessary. These are these kind of messages that you're like, oh, this is really academic. But we've got to have them if we're going to be able to move forward through this thing and get what we need to out of this passage, okay? So background and introduction. Let's read verse number one. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these buildings, these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Okay, so number one, the first thing we have here is we have a mistaken perspective. We have a mistaken perspective in verse number one. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples, and we know from the other gospel accounts, this one disciple is speaking for all of them. Okay, this is, this is all of their, their feelings about this. He says this, uh, saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones... And what buildings are here? So they're walking past the temple on their way to the Mount of Olives. And this disciple is expressing just being overwhelmed at the majesty and the beauty and the architectural accomplishment of the temple. Now, this is the third temple to be built, or we could say enhanced. Okay, The first one is Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was a sight to behold. Then there was the deportation, and Cyrus allowed and even paid for the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple, and you have what many people call Cyrus's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. Okay. Now, the Bible's pretty clear. This temple, not nearly as ornate, not nearly as impressive as Solomon's. Okay. By the way, there's something to be said for something not being as ornate, but it still works. It still works. Then you have the third temple, what we call Herod's temple, located on the same site, and he began construction on it in 20 B.C. Now, not for nothing, Herod's got no business doing anything with the temple. And here's why. Herod had no business being on the throne of Israel. tiny little matter of being the king of Israel. He wasn't an Israelite. He was an Edomite. He was an, an Edomian is what he was called. He was not qualified to be the king. He was only the king because Rome sorted all that out for him. But like many political leaders, he wants to do something that, you know, gets him in good with his people and is a legacy that he can leave behind. So 20 BC, he begins work on his version of the temple, and it wouldn't be completed until long after his death in A.D. 64. Now, there's some things that are interesting about this temple. First of all, it didn't have mortar. The stones were so perfectly cut 
they fit together so tightly, there was no need for mortar. Now, that's even more impressive when you know how big some of these stones were. Some of these stones were as big as modern-day boxcars. Um, Josephus gives us some insight into what that thing looked like. Some of them were 20 to 40 feet long, weighed 100 tons or more, and they fit together perfectly. This thing was a marvel of engineering. A marvel. In fact, just the, just the pad upon which it was built, if you just look at the wailing wall, you see how impressive this engineering achievement was. Many of the stones were covered in gold, and those that weren't, Josephus tells us, shone with a white brilliance. From a distance, it almost looked like a snow-capped mountain sitting up there. And so to look at it, it was so white in the sun, between the gold and the whiteness, oh, it, just, it, would, it would be rough on your eyes to look at it. But the disciples aren't just interested in the beauty of the temple. Their perspective goes a little further. There's a certain pride, a certain confidence in this structure. And it almost leads them to believe that their way of life is more stable than it actually is. When you go to Washington, D.C., and you see the monuments, and you see the buildings that are there. You almost have this idea that America is going to be here forever. But it's not. Pretty good chunk of the Pentagon was taken out on September 11, 2001. The Pentagon was built to look like a fortress. Those things that we look at and it, you know, and it gets our national pride going. And I'm not against being thankful to be American. That's not what I'm saying. But we look at these things like Mount Rushmore and all these things. And we think, man, there's just, we're always going to be number one. I don't believe we will be. America doesn't really feature prominently in prophecy. Now, it could be that we've absorbed into the European Union or whatever this is going to be, this one world government could be we're not here. Now, as a saved man, either way, I'm not going to be here, so I'm not that concerned about it. But, um, but they had this sense of pride. But here's the problem. Here, just at the most three days away from the cross, they still aren't getting it that Jesus is going to die. They're just not getting it. Up to this point, there's only one person that I can tell that really gets it, and that's Mary of Bethany. She's the only one. They are still imagining that this structure must testify to the soon establishment of Messiah's kingdom. Herod, for all of his wickedness, boy, he sure has put a beautiful temple in place for Messiah to use. Nope. They've got a mistaken perspective. And this leads in verse number two to the master's prediction. Verse two. Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? 
there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus predicts that not one stone will be left upon another. This was unthinkable to the Jewish mindset. Unthinkable. But in AD 70, a Roman general named Titus comes in, and that is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. And what's more interesting, and we've talked about this before, when Titus came, yeah, they had to put down a rebellion. They had, they had to establish Romans, Roman dominance. But Titus gave an order. He said, raise the city, but do not destroy their temple. Because he understood politically that if you had any hope of getting them back in line, they needed their religion to do it. Do not destroy their temple. But all that gold on that temple, they set a fire. And the fire got so hot that the gold started to melt into the crevices. And the only way you could get to it was to take the stones down. The fire had already rendered the temple unusable. We might as well cut our losses, pull the stones down, and harvest the gold. See, it didn't matter what Titus ordered. It didn't matter what history prescribed. If Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And no stone was left upon another. Can I remind you of that truth one more time? When Jesus says something is going to happen, it will happen just as he said. The one that comes to mind, you know, the Bible says scoffers say, how long has it been since the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years since he said he was coming back. Yeah, well, we're 2,000 years closer, but he is coming. Because what did he say? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's a promise. There's no other way to read it. There's no other way to interpret it. He made a promise. And when Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. I tell you, it's something even closer to home. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Because Jesus said I would. Even though sometimes I don't feel much like a Christian. Sometimes I don't act much like a Christian. So how in the world can I be confident I'm going to heaven? Because Jesus said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He said that through Paul. It's a promise. And my actions don't negate his promises. So, Have you ever had somebody say something and you knew it needed to be corrected, but you just decided just, just let them have it? Just, let's just keep moving. It's not worth the discussion. Could Jesus have done that? Wow, Master, look at this temple. Could he have thought within himself, yeah, well, you'll see. No. No. Jesus is trying to send them a message, and here's what he's trying to tell them. And what's interesting to me is <laughs> the four that he's talking to now, Peter, James, John, and, and Andrew, it is almost certain that only one of them is even going to live long enough to know this happened, and that's John. 
it looks as though if tradition holds right, Peter, James, and, and Andrew are all martyred before 69 AD. So they're not going to see it. Why does Jesus even bring it up? And John, John's probably not going to be around for it. John's going to be up in Ephesus or further away. John, you know, why even bring it up? Well, he's trying to send them a message. I think it's threefold. Number one, regarding this temple, outward beauty can mask inward corruption. Just just because something is beautiful doesn't mean it's good. Not everything that glitters is gold. Remember what we said about those parts that weren't covered with gold were just such a brilliant white, it was hard to look at. Do you know what Jesus said right before this event? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Can I tell you, the outside of the temple was beautiful, but the stuff going on on the inside was not. There were some exceptions. There were some good, faithful men that were still priests, but the high priest was corrupt. His father-in-law was corrupt. Most of his helpers were corrupt. The Sanhedrin was corrupt. Yeah, you've got your Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but the vast majority of the people in charge of the Jewish system were corrupt. And they might look pretty on the outside, but there's corruption going on on the inside. Number two, maybe Jesus is trying to get them to see outward beauty can mask inward corruption. Number two, apparent strength is no indicator of long-term success. Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. And in 1970, no, it was earlier than that. In 70 AD, it was. In fact, just some years later, in AD 135, the, uh, the rebellion of, of Bar Kokhba, Simon Bar Kokhba, almost eliminated Jewish culture completely. The Romans had had enough. Ever since then, Jewish land has been occupied by Gentiles all the way up until 1948. And even now, would you agree with me that Gentiles still play a significant role in Israel's existence? Oh, they're blessed by God, no question. But you understand that it was Gentiles that that helped broker this deal. You see, the Jewish mindset, and this isn't meant to be anti-Semitic or anything, but the reality is the Jewish mindset thought, you know, our religion can never be touched. Our way of life can never be touched. And I'm going to tell you something. It was touched over and again. And if we're not careful in our nation, (laughs) we're strong. Have you you ever noticed whenever the president does the State of the Union address, he always says, the State of the Union is strong. Just once I'd like one of them to tell the truth. The State of the Union is not great. We got problems. I tell you what I'd really like. I'd really like presidents to go back to what they did back in the old day. All they're constitutionally required to do is send a letter to Congress. Send the letter and stay home. 
and don't interrupt the ball game. You know? That was free. Something else to think about. God's not interested in beauty for its own sake. Only faithfulness. Now, I understand that God gave specific instructions for how to build the temple and what what was to be in there. I get that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to have things looking good. We build this family life center, y'all. I'm not interested in getting up four walls and saying that's good enough. And I don't believe God's interested in that either. That thing needs to be a testimony to this community of what God's doing here. And we want it to be first class, and we want it to be first rate. But honestly, can we go too far with that kind of thing and substitute beauty and ornate things and all of that for the power of God? Yeah, we can. Because God's not interested in beauty for its own sake. He's only interested in faithfulness. So, we see a mistake in perspective. We see the master's prediction. And then we see a meeting in private. A meeting in private. Look at verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Now, if you look at verse 4, you think that they only asked two questions. But that's why it's so important that we use all four Gospels, in this case three, to get the whole whole picture. And in Matthew 24, what we find out is that they asked three questions. Mark and Luke take the second and third question and combine them. Okay. But here's, there's actually three questions. And these three questions form the outline for the Olivet Discourse, and answering them is crucial to rightly dividing this passage. So let's have a look at Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. We know from Mark that it's it's, uh, John, James, Peter, and Andrew. Okay, Came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, number one, when shall these things be? Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And number three, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? Those are the three questions that they ask. And it's so important that we know how to answer these because how we answer these questions is going to determine how we approach the whole rest of this discourse. Okay, If we don't, if we don't understand what questions are being asked, we can't really hope to get the right answers. Okay, So he starts off by saying, what shall these things be? Specifically, they're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? You're telling us that not one stone is going to be left upon another. Right. Okay, when's that going to happen? Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Now, what's he asking there? Okay, when are you going to come and establish yourself as our Messiah and set up your kingdom? What are the signs? leading to that. And then he says, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? When will all of this be over, and then what happens next? Now, with those three questions in mind, if we go back to the original three perspectives that we had, the preterist view, the futurist view, and the hybrid, to me, the preterist view doesn't hold up because it doesn't match up with the questions that they're asking. 
They only ask one question about the destruction of the temple. The other two are about things yet in the future. Okay. Well, the futurist view, if all of it's in the end times, it doesn't say anything about the temple. So the way I see it, my sanctified opinion is that the hybrid's the only way to come to this thing, with all due respect to G. Campbell Morgan and R.C. Sproul and whoever else. So that's where we're going to stop tonight, okay? And I realize it's kind of, oh, wait a minute, what's the so what? The so what is come back next week. That's the so what, okay? So we, we've set the stage with an introduction and a background, but let's 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 kind of let's kind of just look through chapter thirteen and let's let's see where we might get tripped up. Okay, my outline's over. We're just we're just looking through the Bible now because I can't possibly be done at seven fifty four. All right, let's look at uh, verse five. Jesus answering them began to say, "Take heed, lest any man deceive you." For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled for such things. Must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. Oh, okay. So we know the rapture is about to happen with wars and rumors of wars. I don't believe saying that at all. In fact, I don't know that there's much of anything in the Olivet Discourse that touches on the rapture at all. Remember, audience matters. Who is his audience specifically? These four Jews. Are there applications to be made for church people? You better believe it. But we look at something like this and we say, wars and rumors of wars. Jesus must be coming back soon. Listen, friend, I do believe Jesus is coming back soon. But nothing needs to happen in order for that to happen. Jesus can come back at a moment's notice any time he is sent of the Father to do so. There's nothing to look for except his coming. That's it. Okay. So then, is the wars and rumors of wars talking about leading up to the, the destruction of the temple? No. No. The wars and rumors of wars are further down the line. Okay, wait a minute now. What about, what about the being persecuted and brought up in the synagogues and all of that? Does that refer to Peter and James and John and Andrew and the rest of the disciples? Yeah, it does. But could it also refer to later Christians? Yeah, it can. And can it refer to those that are persecuted during the tribulation? Yeah, it can. See, and so we'll start to unpack that. Verse 10, what is verse 10 saying to us? And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Oh, Andy, that means that before Jesus raptures us out of here, everybody has to have heard the gospel. Nope. Then he's not coming. Of all the people groups out there, there's still about half of them that don't even have a Bible in their language. And remember, there's nothing in the Bible that says that anything has to happen before Jesus comes back. That's not what this verse is saying. But what is it saying? You've got to come back. Verse 14, the abomination of desolation. 
Well, that was old Antiochus back there. That was one of them. But there's another one coming, led by the Antichrist himself. See, there's so much going on here. And then here's the thing. I can't stop at the end of Mark because Matthew has a whole other chapter of parables that, that tie right into this. See, so at least three messages. So if you want to kind of jump ahead, if I were you, I'd read ahead. Read through chapter 13 of Mark. Read through uh, Matthew 24 and 25, even Luke 21, and just start getting, getting immersed in it because we're going to jump in and, and we're going to see what Jesus is talking about in this Olivet Discourse, and we're going to seek to answer those three questions that they asked. And in doing so, I think it's going to get us excited about what's going to happen, I believe, soon.